Sorry, folks, uh, the Bible class isn't all, you know, it's just the senior Bible class isn't on. Crash and the junior Bible class is still on. So if you're involved in that, you head on out there and uh, go down the class. I want to take Sophie, uh, Bethany down to the crash there and say, why am I going here by myself? Where, where, where is everyone? Uh, so, apologies. Sorry. No, over the summer. Not over the summer. I can't believe I'm getting heckled in my own church. That's a bad job, isn't it? Huh? Okay. Um, Galatians chapter 5, folks, Galatians 5, um, just while you're, you're turning to that, let me ask you a question. What is a spiritual person? What is a spiritual person? What makes a person spiritual? I mean, in one sense, it's easy to come up with answers. The hard thing is to come up with a consensus on an answer. Um, there are many different ideas of what makes someone spiritual. Is it simply someone who says spiritual things? Uh, I know a guy who had a pet parrot and was able to train the parrot to say praise the Lord whenever somebody walked past it. Is the parrot spiritual? Just because he's saying praise the Lord, praise the Lord? No. It's saying the words, but it doesn't mean anything to it. And I think there's maybe a lot of people who can say spiritual sounding things, but when it doesn't really mean an awful lot to them, it doesn't really matter. I did hear about a preacher, though, who, when he retired, uh, fulfilled a lifetime ambition of buying and owning a horse. And so he bought it young and trained it up. And one afternoon, one of his old members of the congregation came out to see him. And uh, the preacher was boasting about how he had trained the horse in Christianese. And the parishioner kind of looked at him and said, what are you talking about? You've gone mental in your retirement. And says, well... When you take the horse for a ride, there'll be a couple of instructions that you need to follow. Now, the horse doesn't understand what giddy up means. It doesn't understand what giddy up means. If you want the horse to move forward, you have to say, praise the Lord, and the horse will go. Thought, right, okay, strange, but fair enough. says, but if you want the the horse to slow down, whoa, and and whoa, that's not going to cut it. The horse doesn't understand what that means. If you want the horse to stop, you have to say, amen. Thought, right, okay. So the church member set off for a ride uh, and uh, praise the Lord. Oh, and sure enough, started heading off. And this is very nice, nice trotting speed. And uh, as they went up along the top of the coast, uh, something happened. There was a loud noise. Something came out, spooked the horse, and the horse bolted and was heading straight for a steep cliff uh, with a deep uh, uh, drop off into the, the ocean. Now, of course, the guy, in a panic, could he remember how to stop this horse? Whoa, whoa, of course, it's not working. Whoa, whoa, it's not working. And he's getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. And he says, amen. And the horse grinds to hold just at the edge of the cliff. And he goes, praise the Lord. (laughs) And a spiritual person has to be someone, hopefully, has, that has a clicker that works. Um, there we go. A spiritual person is someone who has to be more than recognizes spiritual language. Or it can respond to it or can repeat it. And yet there is a whole wave of New Age things, of, you know, this kind of yoga cult, of just the, uh, uh, like this... this um, Sweeping kind of just yoga intake of people, you know, who, who like totally find their center, <laughs> you know. 
or there's people who go into astrology and star signs and the energy of the universe, man. There's people who go further into the Wiccan cult or there's a steady interest in clairvoyant practices and of course, you know, you see it all around the town, pretty much in most towns, you know, oh, in the town hall, you know, on Friday night there's going to be a reading and there's going to be so on. Uh, of course, I always love it whenever they have to cancel it for unforeseen circumstances. just always sounds so sweet to me. But even more mainstream, like, okay, yeah, you know, you might go to a concert and people say, oh, or, or a festival even, and people say, oh, man, it was just, it was just such a spiritual experience being in that crowd and listening to that music. And if someone says that they're spiritual, it can mean an awful lot of things. The truth is that by saying that you're spiritual, it, it can mean so many things that it doesn't really mean anything. And the truth is, if someone says that they have a spiritual interest or a spiritual experience, the real question to ask is, yeah, but what spirit are you talking about? What spirit have you, you know, experienced? Because for the Christian, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're chasing after. So when we talk about being spiritual people, it's that Holy Spirit that we're looking for. So we'll go to Galatians 5 because Paul is talking about what makes uh, for a spiritual man. He has listed the things that they are not, uh, just in the verses before this, and uh, things that he calls the works of the flesh. And then we go on to read this whole list of things that a spiritual person is. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. And I notice there's a difference there, okay? There's, uh, it's not the work of the Spirit or the work of the Christian. It is fruit, but it is the work of the flesh. And the contrast that he's making there is that it's the contrast between something that is dead and something that is alive. Uh, works, something that is made, something that is manufactured, something that is artificial. It's dead, but fruit is the produce of a living thing. And so Paul's saying, look, there's this categories here that you can identify yourself. It, it, it's coming from something that you're trying to do yourself. It's not the Spirit of God in you. It's fake. It's false. It's dead. But there's these other traits, these other qualities, these other characteristics that set us apart, that show that we are alive in Christ. So let, let's just read this. But the fruit of the Spirit... Is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, you see, right at the start of this series, we were in John 15, and we spent uh, a couple of messages there in, in John 15. And we were looking at... Uh, how we are the vine, or he is the vine, and we are the branches. And we spent time looking oh, that Sunday night, I think it was, but how a fruitful Christian is fruitful in life, powerful in prayer, joyful in spirit. And that was all kind of coming out of John 15. I want to recap a wee bit of that this morning um, about being fruitful in life, at least bringing out the same points and a wee bit more concisely. Uh, and so if it's familiar to you, brilliant. It just means that you're paying attention the first time. 
brownie points to you. But I'm also conscious that in the middle of the summer, there's people who are hearing this for the first time because they've been away on holidays or maybe in Bible class or different things. And so, um, and so I've missed it. And so just to try and get us all up to speed before we go into the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is natural. We were once dead in our sin, but now we are alive in Christ. That life by default will produce fruitfulness, will produce fruitful people. Branches don't have to stress at manufacturing something. You don't walk past an apple tree and you sort of listen to it, kind of going, bang, apples. Oh, yeah. I took it out of my butt. I did good there. Or or you don't kind of walk past, you know, an an orange tree and you just sort of see it sweating and kind of going, boy, that, that orange tree's working hard today doesn't work like that. It comes naturally. If the, if the tree is healthy, the fruit will come. In fact, the branches just have to hang on in there. They just have to stay connected. And the fruit will come as long as that connection is good. The Bible calls that abiding in Christ. If you want to abide in Christ, fruit will come. I'm connected to him. I'm plugged into that source. There will naturally be growth into Christ-likeness. Because I'm spending time in the place of prayer. I'm spending time reading his word and meditating on his word. I'm letting the source feed me. I'm letting the roots go down deep and I'm nourishing myself in those things that come from God. The result will be fruitfulness. It'd be a natural result. Not only that, but fruit is noticeable. You'll recognize the tree by the fruit. You walk past the tree, you see an apple, you go, okay, that's the apple tree. Someone says, hey, meet me by an apple. I don't know if anyone ever would actually say this now, but I say, hey, I'll meet you by the apple tree. What do you look for? You look for the, the tree that has apples in it because a tree is known by its fruit. Now, maybe some of you are really into like trees and stuff, and you'd be able to go, well, actually, Jeff, I'd be able to tell an apple tree by the shape of the leaf and the taste of the bark or whatever it is that you want to do. But for normal people, it's the fruit that gives it away. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about real and fake teachers. And he says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You know the quality of the tree by the quality of the fruit. Which means that If we want to answer this question, what makes for a spiritual person, what makes for a biblical spiritual person? The conclusion is that we don't judge by anything other really than the fruit. We judge by the fruit and we understand that spirituality is more than gifts. But it's really about the fruit. A spiritual person is better known by fruit than gifts. I want to just show you that because I know maybe a lot of people would say, no, no, hold, hold, hold on, Jeff. I, I saw this guy heal somebody. I heard this buddy speak in tongues. I, I've seen this. I've seen this. Those are spiritual people down in that place. They're spiritual people in my family. They're spiritual people. And, and says, well, look, that's, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that they're spiritual. Here's how I can prove that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and says, you guys, you you lack no charisma. You lack no spiritual gift. 
So here was a church that had spiritual gifts. They were healing. They were speaking in tongues. They were doing all these things. They were, they were powerful preachers. They, were, they, were, they had all these gifts that were there in other places as well. But then in the next chapter, in chapter 2, here's what he says. He says, I cannot write to you as spiritual people. But as carnal people, babes in Christ. And listen, spiritual gifts are a wonderful thing. But they are not as important as spiritual fruit. Okay? I'm all about trying to identify spiritual gifts in people and training people up so they can use them. That is wonderful. But it is far more important that you have spiritual fruit in your life. Otherwise, the gifts won't really do you any good. That's just the truth. See, here is a group of people in Corinth and they're experiencing and exhibiting these gifts, but they're lacking the fruit. And Paul calls them babies, uh, carnal, unspiritual. And the whole context of the letter is that you've got this church of people who want to be the, the showman. They want to be at the center of attention. They want to be the focus. They want to be all these other things. And you've got problem after problem after problem in the church. And the real issue that Paul is trying to deal with them is saying, look, the, the, the real problem is that you've got no love there. You've got no joy there. You've got no peace there, which, of course, is what we've read in Galatians 5. And so it's by fruit that we know them. That's what Jesus says, not by gifts. John Stott, and I think I I used this quote in in that last uh, sermon. John Stott says, The Christian life should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. Where the uh, the gaudy decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on for show, whereas fruit grows on a fruitful tree. There's an old story about a man who was one of the early missionaries into China. And he was walking around a rural village and he asked the leader, excuse me, have you heard the gospel? And the village leader looked up at him and says, no, but I have seen the gospel. And he went on to explain that there was a man in the village who was just a torment. He was always starting fights. He was always getting drunk. He was always, wherever he went, there was trouble. And he always left devastation behind him. And then he, he got saved. And he was a terror transformed. And so here was a man in this village who had never heard the gospel, but had seen what the gospel could do in someone, and his life was bearing fruit. And so he said, I haven't heard the gospel, but I have seen it. And so again, going back to the sermon we did a few weeks ago, and we worked through a couple of general ideas of what fruit should look like. Number one, when you win someone to Christ, that is fruit, a fruitful ministry. If you lead someone to Christ, you have input into their, into their lives as you disciple them for Christ. That is fruit. Romans 1.13, Paul says, I've often come, planned to come to you that I might have some fruit among you also. Number two, holy living. A holy lifestyle is considered fruit. Romans 6.22 says, Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness. In the end, everlasting life. In Romans 7, 4, he, he says that you might be joined to another and to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Winning people to Christ, holy living, is a fruitful life. The third is, is giving, financial giving, supporting God's work. Whenever Paul was taking a collection, this is Romans 15 now, 
He, he, and the Gentile churches were bringing that money down to Jerusalem to help out with the work there. He, he said, your offering to the Christians in Jerusalem, he called it this fruit. This fruit that he had plucked from the other churches to give. And this is your fruit that I'm harvesting, bringing to the saints in Jerusalem, is what he says. Number four is works. Colossians 1.10, Paul says that he's praying for them. Uh, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. And so there is this element of, okay, yes, it's one thing to say all the right things, but a spiritual person, a Holy Spirit-filled person who is bearing fruit will also have the works to build it up, to follow through. And the fifth is praise, the fruit of your own lips. Worship when we sing. When we ascribe praise to God, Romans 13, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of your lips. And so that gives you an idea of, of what a, a fruitful person generally is looking at. So fruit is, not, is natural, it's noticeable, it's nourishing. It must be nourishing. If you're a fruitful person, you will be a blessing to other people in your life. Apple trees don't eat its own apples. It grows apples so that other people might eat its apples. It, it is fruitful for the benefit of others. In John 7, Jesus stood at the Feast of Tabernacles and said to the people of Jerusalem, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And a lot of people might say, amen, Jeff. That, that's my experience. I was thirsty. I had this thing in me that I just didn't quite satisfy. And then I met Jesus, and I came, and I found that he satisfies, and it's wonderful, and it's good. But that's not the end of the verse. That's not the end of the verse. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, and he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we're not just saved to kind of store all this fruitfulness up for ourselves, but to be a blessing to the people around. In other words, not only will the Christian be satisfied in God, but he will be a conduit, a channel to satisfy and bless others. That's fruitfulness. That's fruitfulness. And then we come to Galatians 5, and specifically what is the list then that makes a spiritual person? Well, uh, we started by asking what makes a spiritual person. So, so it's a good list to go, come to. Now we have a list of nine qualities here, and it's funny, some people get really kind of worked up about this. They say, uh, it's not nine fruits, Jeff, it's one fruit. Or it's like, oh, it's not, it's clearly nine. People get all worked up about this. Uh, in one way you can argue both ways okay? because you could say oh it's the fruit of the spirit now if I was saying okay Ruth would you, when you're at the shop would you get some fruit in we don't say fruits it's not a word that comes in if I say get me some fruit and she came back with one piece of fruit I'd be like uh, where's the rest of it because that, we don't really use the, word, the plural in that sense so maybe it could easily be nine or is it nine segments of one piece Truth is, whether you think it's nine or whether you think it's one, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point isn't how you visualize it. The point that Paul is making to the church in Galatia is, do you look like this? Do you look like this? That's the point. That's the point. Is your life bearing the marks of spiritual fruitfulness? Do you look like this? So let's rattle through them in a few minutes. Now, I know people spend months going through this list. I'm going to do it in about 15 minutes. So it'll be very much, I'm going to give you a flavor of the fruit, um, uh, so to speak. So love, 
love comes first, unsurprisingly, to, to many. Uh, the word here is agape. And if you, you're here regularly, you'll know that we talk about agape love quite a lot. Now, you can translate it a lot of different ways. None of them in particular are wrong. Uh, but the heart of the meaning is that there is a commitment to love. In the same way, a parent will love their, their children, even when that child is being a jerk. Okay? And sometimes they can be jerks, okay? We all know this, all right? They can be really annoying, and nobody else wants to be bothered with them because they're just a wee tearaway. They're just a wee... But their mummy will go, Hi, but he's my wee toe rag. He's my wee jerk. Oh, I know he's out. I know he's got a lot of energy. I know... But I still love him. I still care for him. That's agape love. That's committed love. All right? In spite of all the evidence... Despite the fact that there's no return on this investment in love, I'm still going to love. I'm committed to loving you. Now, remember, in verse 1 in Galatians 5, he says um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. In verse 13, uh, just before he goes into the two lists of the works and the fruit, he says, you are called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through agape, serve one another. Through committed love, serve one another. And so what Paul is trying to say here is that in the Christian life, there is freedom, glorious, wonderful freedom. We are without chains, but we are not without direction. Okay? We are without chains, but we are not without direction. We are not without purpose. A doctor can practice medicine and not love his patients. A lawyer can, can uh, represent his clients and not love them. A geologist can not love rocks, I suppose. But you can't be a Christian without loving. You can't do it. Jesus said, by this, people will know that you're my disciples. Love. And the truth is, nobody really cares what you know until they know that you care. Moving on, joy. This word appears over 70 times in the New Testament, and the literal meaning is a deep sense of well-being rooted in reality. A deep sense of well-being rooted in reality. This is not about being optimistic. This isn't about forcing a smile or kind of laughing at jokes and kind of escaping from reality for a while. This is a deep sense of well-being, but it's rooted in something. It's rooted in something. Uh, The world needs more joy that is rooted in reality. It's a dark world out there. There's a lot of stuff going on, and there's a lot of stuff happening that could cause despair and cause frustration and cause anxiety. But God has placed us as Christians here to bring joy to the world. We are supposed to fill this world with joy. Now, I know plenty of Christians and they seem to have missed the memo on that. And boy, they suck the life out of a room. Oh, there's nothing worse than a boring Christian. There's nothing worse than a joyless Christian. I, I, we're not, I, I know we're not always going to be happy all the time. And as a church, there's been bereavements and there's been trials and there's been difficulties and it would be ridiculous for us to kind of just go, ha ha, all the time. But there's this joy that's rooted in something deep. And that real joy is infectious. It rubs off on other people. And the church should be a place where people can go and find 
joy. It's a very attractive quality. Now, of course, like everywhere, you will find the pessimist. And these are the people who are usually very quiet. You'll only hear from them though whenever things go wrong or they're not happy. Um, they'll speak up when they think something should be done differently, you know, and you kind of get the drive-by shootings at the door, you know, saying, yeah, you suck, Jeff, yeah, and we're away on. It's like, oh, it's joyless, pessimist. It's always terrible. It's always the worst-case scenario. Being with them, it's like, it's like watching an autopsy. There's no life, and they love picking things apart. It's no fun to be with. Very unattractive. So we should have love, we should have joy, peace. Now, that was the cry of the 60s, wasn't it? Peace, man. John Lennon, well, he wasn't in the 60s, he was 70, early 70s, 71. He wrote uh, Imagine in the early 70s, I think it was. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. It's a nice sentiment in one sense. A lot of people caught on to it. But how he thought we could get peace would only work in an imagination. You could only imagine it that way. Peace is available, but Lenin and others have tried to remove it. Because Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace isn't something that you only get and experience when the circumstances are right. Peace isn't that feeling of putting your feet up after a long day's hard work. That's feeling satisfied, and it's a great feeling. But it's not the same as peace. Peace comes from the confidence that everything is going to be fine. It's okay. It's fine. When there are thunderstorms, my two girls, six and three, they get scared. They get scared of the thunder and they get freaked out by the lightning. And guess what? I'm not scared. I'm not scared of thunder and lightning. Why? Because I know that the storm will not hurt me in my house. So I have peace. My girls are scared because they do not have that confidence. They do not have that assurance. They do not have the confidence that they will be okay from the storm. And that's why they're scared. But peace as a fruit says, I know that God has me. I know that God holds me. I know that God loves me. So what can man do to me? And that transcends circumstances. In fact, it is most useful and most evident in trials and circumstances like that. Because it's about an awareness of being in Christ. Long suffering then. And the emphasis is on the long part of the suffering. Part of suffering is, is about that godly ability to put up with people who let us down, who wind us up. You know those idiots that we have to put up with every now and again? That person in your office that you're clearly thinking about right now. That person in your family that just needs a slap. And it's those people that are so frustrating and, and push your buttons. And you just want to, Lord, give me grace. Give me grace, Lord, because I'm right there. 
long-suffering is our ability to put up with people like that. To not snap. To not lose your temper. Long-suffering is what God has shown to us each and every day. Whenever we make mistakes, whenever we mess up, we talk about God being slow to anger. He is long-suffering with us. So let me ask you, are you slow to anger? Let me ask you a different way. How are you when there's an idiot driver in front of you on the roads? Do not ask my wife how I am when there's idiot drivers on the road. Because I am not very good with idiot drivers on the road in front of me. Oh, I sure don't use your indicators. I sure just don't wave when I let you out. That bugs me. See, I'm I'm getting worked up again. In Galatians 5, Paul picks up the contrast. The work of the flesh in the earlier verses is quickness of temper, wrath. In verse 20. And then you contrast that to the fruitfulness of being alive in Christ, that fruit that comes from knowing him. We can suffer long because it's rooted in what we understand God has done for us. We appreciate grace. Therefore, we can be patient with other people because we understand that God has been so patient with us. And so there is a long-suffering element to us as we grow in Christ. Kindness or, or gentleness. Let me, um, well, I suppose the easiest way of saying this is about a tender concern. A tender concern for others. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some people, and, and maybe uh, this is, stereotyping a wee bit but typically men are not very good at this we find it hard to be gentle or at least to show our gentleness especially with other men Uh, we don't really open up all that much we don't really show that kind of concern for other people in Northern Ireland you're far more likely to get a wee bit of sarcasm to wind each other up to mess around to slag people off we, we have a laugh. We, we have a bit of banter and we kind of just, oh, I'm just trying to cheer them up a wee bit. The truth is that psychologists will tell you that it will take five or six positive comments to compensate for every one negative, com- uh, negative comment that we receive. Okay, ladies, I'm going to put this one on you, all right? So uh, imagine you've got a brand new outfit, okay? Your, your husband's taking you out for dinner or there's a wedding or there's something, okay? And you're, you're, you're stepping out on the town, okay? You've been buzzing, okay? You've, you started getting ready at nine in the morning and now you're ready. And you get out and there's 10 of your friends. You look stunned. Oh, babes, you look, you're, you're, it's on point, you're fired. This is amazing. You look so good. And then you overhear just one person who makes some cruel comment about mutton dressed as lamb or being poured into the dress or it's not her color or it makes certain parts of her body look bigger than what they should. All those other ten comments aren't what you're going to take away from that night. Because one negative comment has a way of piercing us. We talked about this last time about piercing words. But those who are abiding in Christ will be kind, gentle with our words, looking to build people up. Next one is goodness. Goodness. Uh, Now, maybe 
the other way of putting it is sweetness, a sweetness. Now, maybe your mummy calls you her little sweetie, but that's not what this is. It's not about being your wee mummy sweetie. This is, maybe the easiest way of doing this is, is looking at what the opposite of sweetness is. The opposite of sweetness is bitterness. A bitter person will hold on to anger, will hold on to grief, will, hold, will keep scores with other people. So a good person, a sweet person, is the opposite of that. Is the opposite of bitter. It, it's love in action. Remember what Romans 12 says, uh, those powerful verses right at the end of Romans 12. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then it goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul goes on to say, uh, he speaks of fighting the good fight. That fight to put bitterness to death in our life. To, to, to move towards forgiveness, towards putting sin away in our lives and living with that purpose and that energy for God. And that's the good fight of faith. I want to be good. I want to be a sweetness. Um, Faithfulness. Uh, uh, this is very simple. This is the desire to keep promises. Whether it's your wedding vows, where you promise to love and to cherish in sickness or in health, in richness or in poverty, in be- uh, better or for worse. What keeps you there in those hardest moments in married life? And they come. They come for everyone. What keeps you there is the fact that you are faithful. You keep your promises. I've made a promise before God to love this woman, to cherish this woman. I have made a promise to be faithful and to hold her close to my heart. I am keeping my promise. Or even if you promise that on Saturday you're going to spend time with your kids, you're going to take them to football, or you're going to take them to see Toy Story 4, or you're going to take them to do whatever it happens to be, You're going to keep that promise because those promises are not negotiable if work comes up or if a better offer comes up because faithfulness is about your integrity. Faithfulness is about your dependability. Faithfulness. Gentleness now or meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness and a famous phrase, but it's not about being weak. This isn't about Christians being doormats. And so often, sometimes as Christians, we get sucked into being a doormat because we don't want to say no to someone who isn't a Christian because, well, maybe if I do this and if I, if I bend over backwards enough, they'll become Christians. And so we just have no life because we're running around doing everything for everyone else and we're just a doormat. But we're trying to be gentle. I will not stand up to bullies. I will not stand up to things. Meekness is not weakness. It's about that power that is under control. The best analogy that I've ever heard of this is of a horse. Okay, a wild horse that is powerful and has all that strength and all that speed. And then a trainer comes and breaks the horse. The horse is broken in so that he is considered safe to ride and has his manners 
You know, he can take a saddle, he can take a rider, he can do that without bucking and without charging off. And um, a wild and powerful horse becomes usable and submissive to the master. That power is still there. But what the difference is, is that the, the master has it under control. There is power in the believer. In our words, in our actions, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, there is power in us. God is in us. There is power in us. But the question is, is that power under the control of the master? Or do we use it to lash out? Last one, self-control. This is the discipline of the athlete. They say, I may want that fry, but no thank you. I will not have it because I have this race coming up. And I would rather win the race and win the prize than, than satisfy myself with this fry right now. The idea is something that is short-term and immediate and small is not going to distract from the bigger, better price in the long term. Now, this is part of being of the fruitfulness in Christ. So often you'll hear people say, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And we kind of react and we do the things that make us feel good in the short term. And we kind of put on hold the, the long term stuff. We kind of sacrifice it. Because, well, I want to feel good right now. Do what makes you feel happy now. Do what makes you kind of satisfied right now. But, it, you know, it's like, you know, okay, so a lot of the students are waiting for their GCSE results and their A-level results, okay? Now, there will be a difference between some people who will, okay, generally just worry about them, but there will be people who will be like, okay, you know what? I trained myself. I, I, I put the work in. I, I revised. I studied. I tried. And then there's other people who are really starting to panic. Because they realize, I should have put more work in. I sacrificed the short-term benefits of watching I'm a Celebrity or Love Island. And now I really wish I hadn't. Because I've sacrificed my GCSE results. I've, I've sacrificed maybe my, my university place by not focusing on the prize. Remember in Genesis 25, Esau sold his birthright for the sake of some red soup. He came in from the field and he was hungry and he, he chose that immediate short-term gain and gave it up, gave up the greater long-term rewards. It happens all the time in Christian life. Fruitful Christians, though, grow in that self-control. I'm not going to give in to this, even though, yes, I really want it. I'm going to say no because I understand that there's a bigger price that's ahead of me. So look, we've seen what fruitfulness looks like generally. We've seen what it looks like specifically. Can I finish with a simple question? What does it look like for you actually? Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Or maybe your Bible says, to walk in the Spirit. One thing to know this stuff about fruitfulness. One thing to study it and know what all the words mean. It's another thing to do it. So according to Paul in Galatians, what is a spiritual person? It's not someone who can manufacture works of the flesh. 
but someone who is plugged in and rooted in Christ and abiding in him and bearing fruit that proves that we are actively walking with him. That's a spiritual person. And so, look, I'd encourage you, take, take that list, go home, study it, pray for that fruit to manifest itself in your life. And I pray that God would do that in all of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for these checklists that we have. Uh, and Lord, we thank you that while it gives us such a good understanding of who we're supposed to be in you, of what a Christian growing healthily will look like, Lord, there's so much variance there, Lord, that it may look differently in each of us, but it's still growing and it's still there. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to excuse me, to be fruitful, to, to develop that gentleness, that, that dependability, that self-control, that love, that joy that is so desperately needed in our life. Oh, Lord, I pray that people would see it, that we would be known for our fruit, that people would see that in us. And we pray this in your precious name. We're going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing another piece, and then we'll go into our time of communion. Thanks, Robert.